Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. We just can't seem to catch a break, huh? So many rough fire seasons. But we made it through. And now there's another risk. All that charred soil and burnt vegetation can lead to floods and mud flow. I know, but you've got this too. And one way to get this is to get this flood insurance. There's no rest for the West, but with flood insurance, you can rest assured that you're ready for whatever else nature throws at you. Protect the life you've built at floodsmart.gov wildfires. Hey guys, this is Brian Foote, CEO of Humble and host of the new Humble Nation podcast. As a recently public company, we're seeing interest in blockchain, mobile payments, ticketing, NFTs, and more growing faster than ever in what we call the digital economy. So join me along with high profile guests from the world of pro sports, music, entertainment, and other industries as we talk about how technologies like blockchain are shaping their world, ours, and the decade ahead for all of us in the digital economy, only on Humble Nation. Omicron spreads faster than any other COVID-19 variant, so it's important for you to mask up to limit the spread. N95, KN95, and KF94 masks offer the best fit and filtration. Don't have these? Surgical masks or double masking with a surgical and fabric mask can also offer great protection. So there you go. Mask, vax, and get boosted. Learn more at covid19.ca.gov. Brought to you by the California Department of Public Health. I think that con artists are effective because they are incredible readers of human beings. What they do better than almost anyone else is figure out what makes you personally tick. What motivates you? What are your hopes? What are you scared of? You know, what are your fears? What are your hangups? How do you see the world? What are the biases and the lenses through which you view reality? And then what they do is sell that back to you. They give you the vision of the world that you already believe in, the vision of yourself that you want to see reflected back and not reality. Part of what makes a con artist's story so compelling is there's usually a grain of truth that makes the lie more convincing. 
So it was with Glafira Rosales and the story she was spinning to Anne Friedman about a supposed Clifford Still painting. It was a wild tale in which the painting was said to be photographed, then stored in the trunk of a car. Only the car's rear engine had caught fire, leaving the painting badly burned and unsellable. And it happened, actually. Carlos was preparing the pieces and he was uh, treating them with hair dryers and putting them in cold and hot temperatures. So that one got burned because he uh, forgot to turn the hair dryer off and of course it went in flames. And now Anne is waiting for the piece and what is the explanation I'm gonna give? Well, Carlos told me it will tell them this. Ironically, Anne Friedman would later use a fragment of the burned painting as proof that Glafira's paintings must have been real. After all, what forgers would intentionally burn their carefully crafted artwork? In fact, certain materials in the burned fragment typically appeared in authentic Clifford Still paintings. A mishap that could have hindered the entire operation became, instead, proof of the painting's authenticity. Glafira Rosales is unquestionably the most fascinating and elusive character in the story of the Nodler scandal. While many of the major players have sat for interviews on camera or in print over the years, Rosales has only told her story privately to federal prosecutors and investigators. Michael Schneerson and I spoke with Glafira Rosales in early 2021 in a small conference room at the Lowell Hotel in New York City. She was accompanied by her daughter, Soli. Rosales is a shy, diminutive woman with straight, dark hair, almost shoulder length, and glasses that make her look rather academic. She speaks softly, apologizing for her English. These days, Rosales lives with her daughter in a small Upper East Side apartment. Decades before, the irresistible hustle of New York City life would lure her to Nodler, Glafira Rosales was born and raised in Mexico. My father had a lot of cows, all kinds of animals, and we have to help with everything, of course. It was a little ranch, so no water, no electricity. I grew up uh, with um, uh, a very difficult father. My childhood, it was very, very difficult. Your father was difficult? Well, he was abusive. You know, we have to get up at four o'clock in the morning, uh, go and help him to the farm, also help my mom clean uh, places for the animals, give them food, carry water from kilometers away because there was no water. And then I went to Mexico City, so I studied there. I was a nurse, I became a nurse, and then I was studying medicine. It was my dream <laughs> to be a doctor. Despite her initial dreams of working in medicine, Rosales was intrigued by fine art as well. At the school, they teach you about art, about the muralist, the big muralist of the country, like Diego Rivera, Frida Kahlo, all of them. By the age of 19, Rosales had a boyfriend, a scruffy, unimpressive restaurateur in Mexico City named Carlos Bergantinos. Carlos had come from Spain to run a little eatery in Mexico's capital city. Glafira's sister worked as a waitress at the restaurant. One night, she called Glafira in a panic. As it turned out, 
a relationship that would be fraught with chaos started no less dramatically. She was scared that something happened at the restaurant. Somebody, which it was him, it was drunk and uh, he was having problems. So I came to help him, kind of rescue him. And from then, he never left me alone. Despite their chaotic beginnings, Bergantinos and Rosales stayed together and would eventually have a daughter together. It was Bergantinos who first urged Glafira to come to the United States. I never want to come here. I never thought that it was good to come here. I felt sorry for people who came here uh, and went through so much, so I never thought to come here. But he convinced me to come. He said that it was a land of opportunities. Carlos and Glafira first arrived in Chicago in 1983. They lived there only for a short time before moving south to Houston, Texas, where the couple worked many different low-wage jobs to support themselves. He was working as a waiter. He works as a chef. I clean houses. I uh, work as a waitress, bus girl, taking care of elderly people. From Houston, the couple eventually moved to New York City. They arrived one night on a bus at Port Authority. Walking past prostitutes and drug addicts, they carried their bags to a shelter on 14th Street, but were turned away. They ended up that first night in a hotel on West 14th Street with communal bathrooms so appalling that Glafira used a bucket to avoid them. Longing for a more peaceful and safer community, Carlos and Glafira settled in Great Neck, Long Island. One early business venture for the pair was learning how to treat antique furniture, specifically how to make new furniture look old. There seemed to be some promise in that. Inside a local art gallery one day, Carlos Bergantino stumbled onto a potentially more lucrative idea. We were selling antiquities and we came to a gallery where they were selling art too and they say that this painting is on the style of and from there is where Carlos got the idea of oh if they could work with antiquities why not work with paintings making them look old too Glafira says she resisted the idea but had no choice Carlos pressured me. He pressured me. He um, abused me physically and, and uh, verbally. And um, he also threatened me to take my door away. He couldn't go to galleries himself because um, he had bad reputation. So I had no choice. As it turned out, Carlos Bergantinos was highly skilled at aging new artworks and presenting them as old masterworks. He first used his burgeoning talent to sell at least one fake painting presented as a work by the artist Jean-Michel Basquiat. Well, what happened was that painting, untitled 1991, is a fake Basquiat painting that was sold by Christie's back in the early 90s. That's Richard Gollop, a New York City attorney who specializes in the art world. Basquiat died, I think, in 1987. This painting was sold at auction in 1992, 1991 at Christie's, and it was consigned to Christie's by Bergantinos, and the painting 
was sold as an authentic Basquiat, and it sold for $200,000, and then Tony Schifrazi then exhibited it at his gallery in a Basquiat show back in, I think, 1994. In those days, Christie's didn't care about verifying or confirming the information, or they had a paucity of information about the consigner. So the consigner didn't have to give his social security number, didn't have to prove how he knew Basquiat, didn't have to give any kind of biographical history of the relationship between him and Basquiat, how he acquired it from the artist. They just took it on consignment, put it on the auction floor and sold it. That's kind of amazing, isn't it? Well, more than amazing. Before the Basquiat was consigned to Christie's, Christie's, they had that painting on an easel, and they called up Gerard Basquiat. Gerard was Jean-Michel's father. And they said, we've got this Basquiat. We're not sure it's authentic and everything else. Go over and take a look at it. And he went over to 67th Street with a friend of his, and they looked at the painting, and he didn't think it was right. They nevertheless put it in the auction, and they sold it. The 1991 fake Basquiat showed that even the most renowned auction houses were willing to compromise for the sake of a sale, and that con artists were all too ready to nudge them along. Bergantinos tried another fast one at Christie's in the early 1990s, damaging whatever small reputation he had. Bergantinos got into trouble in the early 90s, you know, because he went to Christie's and he bid $400,000 for a, a South American painting and then ran out of the auction room. That's always great when a bidder runs out of the auction room. <laughs> Afterward, they can't get his number. Literally ran out of the I auction room? I guess so, yeah. And uh, This, this came was, of course, at the same time as the Basquiat, right? Right, in, in around the same time. They, they were buying paintings all over the place and phoning up paintings all over the place. On another occasion, around 1995, Carlos made a successful bid of $85,000 on a 19th century Spanish painting. But then he failed to make payment and take the work. Christie sued him as a result. Because of these ham-handed art deals, money for Carlos and Glafira was tight. To make ends meet, Glafira sold Halloween pumpkins. She sold flowers. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. At one point, she and Carlos even wholesaled lobsters to New York restaurants. On Long Island's North Shore, Carlos had come to love fishing and hung out with local fishermen. On a whim, he bought an old ambulance and filled it with lobsters freshly caught by his pals. Carlos would then deliver the lobsters to Manhattan restaurants in the ambulance. One day, with lobsters on board, bound for a local restaurant, Carlos found himself running late. The restaurant owner threatened to fire him if he missed his deadline. In desperation, Carlos turned on the ambulance's siren and raced through traffic, arriving just in time. Glafira urged him not to use the siren again, but Carlos wouldn't hear of it. He continued his ambulance lobster deliveries racing down the streets of New York with the siren wailing. Eventually, Carlos was pulled over by police. Did the ambulance workers need an escort? No, Carlos said. No problem there. The cops grew suspicious. What was he transporting? Sheepishly, Carlos pulled out two lobsters and displayed them in the glare of the spotlight. For a moment, the cops stood in stunned silence. When Carlos explained his mission, the officers collapsed in laughter. More art fraud in a minute. We just can't seem to catch a break, huh? So many rough fire seasons. But we made it through, and now there's another risk. All that charred soil and burnt vegetation can lead to floods and mud flow. I know, but you've got this too. And one way to get this is to get this, flood insurance. There's no rest for the West, but with flood insurance, you can rest assured that you're ready for whatever else nature throws at you. Protect the life you've built at floodsmart.gov wildfires. Hey guys, this is Brian Foote, CEO of Humble and host of the new Humble Nation podcast. As a recently public company, we're seeing interest in blockchain, mobile payments, ticketing, NFTs, and more growing faster than ever in what we call the digital economy. 
So join me along with high-profile guests from the world of pro sports, music, entertainment, and other industries as we talk about how technologies like blockchain are shaping their world, ours, and the decade ahead for all of us in the digital economy, only on Humble Nation. Speaking of uh, Renaissance women, we are here with the great Gabby <laughs> Thomas, the newest rock star on the U.S. track and field and global track and field scene. And oh, thank you. It's just amazing you. what you're what you're contributing to your time on earth is just amazing academically, athletically, as a person, you give off a great vibe and you're obviously a good contributor to uh, society and people around you from all walks of life. When you're passionate about the things that you're doing, it's like, yeah, it becomes easy. Omicron spreads faster than any other COVID-19 variant. So it's important for you to mask up to limit the spread. N95, KN95 and KF94 masks offer the best fit and filtration. Don't have these? Surgical masks or double masking with a surgical and fabric mask can also offer great protection. So there you go. Mask, vax, and get boosted. Learn more at covid19.ca.gov. Brought to you by the California Department of Public Health. Forced to participate in Carlos's art forgery scheme, Glafira began educating herself in art. Carlos's mishaps had revealed the obvious. He needed to stay in the shadows. Glafira was now the front person, the charmer with a surprisingly keen eye for art. Carlos sent me to look for customers. I took um, courses, I took symposiums, I took lectures. Carlos saw himself as something of an artist. He even took classes at the Art Student League on 57th Street in New York. For decades, the League had drawn up-and-coming artists, including many abstract expressionists, Helen Frankenthaler, Roy Lichtenstein, James Rosenquist, Robert Rauschenberg, and more. Among the students at the League was a Chinese artist named Pei Shen Quan, an immigrant artist taking classes and in his spare time selling portraits on street corners to earn extra money. He met him in the village on, on 6th Avenue. The painter was there doing portraits, I believe, for people, and that's how I know that he met him. Eager to make a market for himself, Kwan also painted Impressionist landscapes. Carlos could tell they were good, but where was the potential for in the style of Impressionist paintings? The originals were among the best-known artworks in the world. Forging a Monet water lily painting would be like holding up an American flag and claiming it was an original image. But creating in the style of works by abstract expressionist painters like Pollock, de Kooning, and the others would work as long as Kwan was skilled enough to produce persuasive knockoffs. He tried several artists and he came up with he was the best. Carlos tried several artists. Yeah. Can I say something about that? <laughs> there is like that version. I see on the media that they portrayed Quan, like the genius. They portrayed me. I am the villain. But <laughs> patient, he could not do that himself, of course. He needed guidance. Quan's later portrayal in the media as the genius artist would irk Glafira. She knew that Carlos's contribution to the paintings was just as important as Quan's. Where would Quan be without Carlos's idea to create these paintings in the style of? Glafira saw how much work Quan put into each painting. 
but she also knew just how much of the process was a true team effort. The help that I gave it was to say if it was okay, if it was not okay, <laughs> I mean. And how about Carlos? What help did he give to Pasha? Um, well, he gave him the materials, he prepared the materials, he signed for the pieces, he curated the pieces. <laughs> An ambitious artist himself, Quan had grown up in China's island city of Zhoshan and in Shanghai. Early on, he had painted portraits of Chairman Mao for display in Chinese workplaces and schools. But as the Cultural Revolution ebbed, he had participated in a daring abstract art movement in Shanghai. At the same time, Quan had begun copying the works of well-known Chinese artists. It's important to note that in Chinese art, there's no dishonor in copying others' work. It's an homage, and for that matter, an historical tradition. Many artists make a point of creating a sort of split-screen art, with a traditional painter's picture on one side of the canvas and a young artist's interpretation of it on the other. Armed with a student visa and his own American dreams, Quan had come to New York City in 1981 and moved into a tiny white cottage on 95th Street in Woodhaven, Queens. Surviving as an artist proved difficult, however. Instead of making his name in America, he had been forced to take jobs in construction. Quan's neighbor across the street, Edwin Gardner, recalled him as unhappy. Whenever he could, Quan would go back to China to visit. When he was over in China, he would feel like a rock star, Gardner explained, because when he walked out on the street, everybody knew him. But there was no way to make a living as an artist in China in those post-cultural revolutionary years. My name is Zhang Hongtu. Uh, it's Chinese way. Put a family name first. But you call me Hongtu, it's perfect. I'm a painter. I uh, came here in 1982. Hongtu met Quan in the United States. They became friends and fellow artists through the 1980s. Patient is a very quiet person. And also I heard from other students, uh, they told me patient is very frustrated because uh, uh, his wife is still in Shanghai, his own family, his wife, his uh, children still in Shanghai. Here, he's alone, he feels so lonely, and nobody recognizes him, uh, nobody knows his art, nobody, uh, especially his English was not so good. Quan displayed his art on a street corner in Greenwich Village, along with other Chinese artists who had immigrated to America. But eventually he began to resent the sidewalk art scene. Hong Tu recalls his friend saying, I'm not good to do that. There's a competition between artists. People lower the price. People sit there to make portrait. Somebody said $15 for a portrait. The other one said $10. He, he couldn't do that. Because he clearly had some ambition. Yes. And he had ambition to be a good artist. Yes. One day, we have a common friend. She brought patient to MoMA. Patient was nailed down to the floor at the front of Monet's water lily painting and crying, cried like a baby. Kneeling down that day in tears at the MoMA, Quan's passion and his desire to be a truly great artist was obvious to everyone who knew him. 
One thing I want to tell you, that's what I feel about American. After a few years living in America, American, it never promise you that you will become a Picasso or famous rich artist. But this country promises you you have the freedom to do your art until the last day of your life. I think that early 1990, many Chinese artists painting portrait in the street. But in the same time, he's still working on the street, but not like a street portrait artist. He painted some small like landscape, like uh, still life. He painted in his studio. Then he sell. In the then、street. he came out to the street. Yeah, and yeah. sold the the landscape. Yes, that's what I heard.、Uh, people find him Rosales. Rosales. Yes, Glafiri Rosales. Rosales' boyfriend. As they struggled through the eighties and early nineteen nineties, Quan and Hong Tu had much in common. Though by outward appearances, Hong Tu was more successful. He found a gallery to represent him both in New York and China. He rented a sprawling studio space in Woodside, Queens. The subways overhead rumbled loudly, but were oddly soothing. Some of his work was winsome, even playful. He made heavy bronze replicas of McDonald's packaging for French fries and hamburgers. Other works, particularly at the Art Students League, showed a darker side. But for Hong Tu, the immigrant experience on which he based his work was ultimately uplifting. Not so for Quan. One day, Carlos and Glafira stopped to admire the paintings of a Chinese artist doing impressionist landscapes. So skilled was the artist that Carlos introduced himself. He showed Quan a book of various artist work, including the Hudson River painters. Could Quan paint a picture like one of these? Sure, Quan said. The friendly couple offered to pay him one hundred dollars, and Quan went off to work on his new picture. When the trio met up again in the village, Quan showed them his painting. It was remarkable. Carlos doubled Quan's compensation to two hundred dollars per painting. Quan was creating pictures in the style of. These were interpretations of the original artist's work. With one big difference, Carlos and Glafira wanted the original artist's name in the lower right corner, not Quan's. Working from the garage of his house in Queens, Quan began turning out one dazzling knockoff after another. Carlos and Glafira noticed that Quan was good at landscapes, but much better at abstract expressionist works. That was convenient because the style of the works was much more forgiving and subjective. Carlos would come by to inspect Quan's work with Glafira in tow. They marveled at how realistic the forgeries were. Incredibly, at first, Quan and Bergantinas sold their fakes on the street. Quan was paid a pittance for his work, about seven hundred dollars per canvas now. Quan said nothing to his buyers on the street about whether the paintings were real or not. He used his poor English to shrug off all questions. Either the passersby bought his paintings or not. A surprising number did. Remarkably, Quan proved so facile that he could imitate not just one mid-century master, but nearly all of them. Experts would be stunned that such a thing was even possible. 
Later, he would tell ABC News, my intent wasn't for my fake paintings to be sold as the real thing. They were just copies to put up in your home, if you like. Over time, Carlos grew more ambitious, and in his own way, just as skilled as Quan. He brought Quan old canvases at flea markets and auctions, and supplied him with old paints used specifically for forgery. Carlos stained the canvases with tea bags to make them look older. A blow dryer came in handy. He also exposed the newly painted canvases to harsh weather. Carlos was particularly good at frames, finding originals at flea markets and garage sales, and then treating them to look as if they'd been resting intact for half a century or more. Later, when authorities combed his studio, they would find among supplies an envelope labeled Rothko Nails. Edwin and Mary Ann Gardner, Quan's neighbors in Queens, began to notice that a man in an expensive car would come to Quan's house fairly often, carrying paintings too, not from the house. That was likely Bergantinos. Carlos would bring a painting in for him to work on or fix up, Gardner recalled, of the mysterious visitor. But Quan didn't volunteer any details, and Gardner thought better than to ask. Into Quan's tiny garage came the paintings, wrapped up. Out they went some days later. Before long, Quan's wife came to join him in the U.S., the result of a complex and expensive process that his fellow artists could hardly help but notice. And now, with some money in his pocket, he decided to celebrate. I went to a big party. He hosted a big party at his house because his uh, wife moved to New York, joined him. That's big things for every, uh, everyone. So he, he, he gave a big party. And I asked him, hey, what are you doing right now? He said, I have some dealer representing my work. Mm. That time, when I recalled the, the timeline, he already do the fake painting. Quan didn't tell Hong Tu or any of his other guests what he was doing. He just turned up the music. We, we were singing together, we were dancing together. That's for Chinese people, Chinese party, it's not, a, it's, it's unusual. Usually people just eating, just talking, no. Later, when the truth came out, the occasional write-up would note that Chinese artists often imitated the work of earlier masters. But as Hong Tu noted, there was a difference between an artistic tribute signed by the acolyte's name and a work where only the original signature was appended. Because uh, when you sell this kind of painting, other people's style with a signature, but you tell people, that's my study or that's my copy. What you didn't do was claim your own painting was someone else's work. That, declared Hong Tu, was a crime. If you copy other people's work, you sell. That means you get money from others' work. Bergantinos would deny ever meeting Anne Friedman or visiting the Nodler Gallery. He said Glafira alone had duped the Nodler. He claimed Glafira had hired Quan to turn out the forged masters. I was never ambitious, Carlos told the New York Times in a follow-up article. Glafira was the ambitious one. She had been motivated, he said, by money and glamour. She loved fancy clothes and fancy parties. Glafira has her own version, of course. 
She says Carlos had grown more abusive and given her no choice but to carry on as the front person in the scheme. The fancy parties and the fancy clothes she may have bought were part of the job. Without that polished appearance, she might never have met Jaime Andrade and Anne Friedman at a Soho art gallery opening in the early 1990s. One of the person who gave a lecture, she had a, a gallery in the Soho area. She invited us to go to her opening, and there is where I met Jimmy. And he told me about, he, he works at that gallery. And Did he say that he might introduce you to Anne Friedman? Yes. Why did Jaime introduce you to Anne? Well, I told him that I have uh, access to some pieces of art. And so he introduced you to Anne, and then Anne said, bring them in? Yeah. Wow. And that first one was a Diebenkorn? Yes. Okay. Now, did uh, Paishan, did he make that Diebenkorn with your help and with Carlos's help? Yes. It's not that he just made one and voila, mm. it's nice, it's good. No, he had to make many. He had, and, 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 we, and we have to choose the best one. Yes. So it was not just paying 1000 or $500. No, you, <laughs> he made many, but they were not good. So many efforts. Finally, you had a good demon corn, and you took it in. And when you came in, to the Nodler, how did you feel? I mean, wasn't it kind of scary? Oof, very scary. I know, you know that. <laughs> you knew the painting was fake. Well, yes, I did. So it was very scary, very stressful. But I was pressured by Carlos. It would be fair to say here that a couple as skilled in prevarication as Rosales and Bergantinos may not have been entirely truthful in recounting their story. At the same time, for Glafira, at least, the cost of later lying to law enforcement investigators would have been severe indeed if discrepancies were discovered. We are inclined to believe that the story she's told us is true, but it's worth remembering that these are the words of a self-confessed con artist. Glafira was very smart in targeting Anne specifically. I think that she had to understand the profile of the victim she was looking for. Someone who had everything to gain. Someone who needed to establish her name in the art world. Someone who was hungry and still needed something that would cement her reputation. That's Maria Konnikova again. Maria is the author of The Confidence Game, Why We Fall For It Every Time. A New Yorker staff writer and Harvard graduate, Maria devotes a whole chapter of her book to the Nodler forgeries, bringing to bear her years of study of the practice of deception and chance. In the relationship between Anne Friedman and Glafira Rosales, she saw classic signs of the con artist at work and an all-too-willing victim. There were a few things about Anne that I think really stood out. She was new at her job, and she started as a secretary. So someone who clearly starts with a chip on her shoulder in some respects, because you start from the very bottom. She's female. Most directors of prominent art galleries are males. She's 
not yet established. People are kind of looking at her thinking, huh, you know, is she going to be able to pull this off? And so I'm guessing that Glafira made the rounds of the art world, looked into different galleries, and tried to figure out who's going to be my ideal victim. It was not happenstance that she approached Anne and that she actually zeroed in on someone who would be the most susceptible, who was most likely to believe this because she was most motivated to believe this. So thrillingly vibrant were the works and seemingly real that Anne Friedman let her passions get the best of her. Of course they were genuine, she told art world experts. How could they not be? Amongst fellow staffers, experts, and collectors, Anne was adamant. Soon, she felt Glafira and her client, Mr. X Jr., would trust her enough to share their story with her. And she was trustworthy, as Anne fervently told Glafira every time she came in. In the meantime, Anne had to avoid pushing too hard, lest Mr. X Jr. reconsider and take his paintings elsewhere. And so, through the rest of the 1990s, the shy seller and the eager buyer kept... This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks. Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. An uneasy balance. Two or three masterly paintings that sold at great profit 
led to four and five paintings and more. None had any reasonable provenance. Naturally, Anne grew desperate to hear more. Perhaps the first clue came over lunch. Glafira and Anne had become close enough to celebrate each new painting from the Mr. X Jr. collection with a high-priced Upper East Side lunch. Glafira was kind enough to remember Anne's birthday and gave her a meaningful present each year, an expensive pen, for example. Anne, in turn, would ask Lafira about her daughter, who excelled in violin. I saw her as a well-mannered woman, Anne later said of Lafira to Vanity Fair. Was it frustrating that I couldn't learn more from her? Sure, but I always hoped, every time I was with her, that she would reveal more, and that I would come closer to knowing more, stone by overturned stone. She knew that someday I expected to meet him, Anne added of Lafira and Mr. X Jr. She never said never. She just said, can't now. Under gentle but persistent pressure, Rosales finally let slip that Mr. X and his wife, the parents of her client, had been a wealthy couple from the Philippines. Their fortune had come from the sugar business, and it had allowed them to make frequent art-buying trips to New York. Often on these trips, Glafira recounted, they had been guided by Alfonso Osorio, an abstract expressionist painter whose own Philippine family, like Mr. and Mrs. X's, had grown wealthy from the sugar trade. As Anne discovered in her research, Osorio was close to many abstract expressionist painters, none more so than Jackson Pollock. Often in the 1950s, Osorio entertained the Hamptons art crowd at his 60-acre East Hampton waterfront compound called The Creeks. It was at Pollock's urging that Osorio bought The Creeks in the first place. As Anne noted with growing excitement, Osorio had been known for acting as an informal art advisor, putting buyers, especially Filipino buyers, in touch with artists and their dealers. It was possible that the paintings may have been bought directly from various New York artists' studios in cash with no taxes paid. From there, they would be smuggled back to the Philippines. That would account for the collection's long disappearance and their re-emergence in Glafira's hands. Or so said Anne. It was art world sleuthing, one clue leading to the next. Anne and her staffers spent a lot of time poring over the Nodler archives, going all the way back to the 1930s. It happened to be the best art archive in America. That was the kind of archive hunting that may have made Alfonso Osorio a key character in the backstory, at least in Anne Friedman's mind. Later, Anne told me she had asked Glafira, did the name Osorio ring any bells with Mr. X Jr.? Glafira promised to ask her mysterious client. We'll be back after this. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me not. So he returned me because he had 30 days to do so, which is plenty of time to discover you don't love someone or, in my case, something. Because, surprise, I'm a CarMax car who is now back on the market. 30-day money-back guarantee. It's car buying reimagined. CarMax. 30-day, 1,500-mile limit. See CarMax.com for details. Advertising is online and delivered where you are, just like this radio ad. Want to know what else is delivered where you are? We'll give you a hint. 
It's shiny, has a honk, and comes with special features that you get to personally pick out, like leather or cloth, sunroof or moonroof, or four-wheel drive versus all-wheel drive. Yeah, a car, a CarMax car. Buy online, get it delivered to you. It's car buying reimagined. CarMax. Available within a 60-mile radius of select stores. See CarMax.com for details. Some restrictions apply. You know, historical trading markets just don't come around that often. Exactly. It's a once-in-a-lifetime thing, and, you know, we look back at the NYSE and then the, the 90s.com with the NASDAQ, and I'm going, this is, this is a new market. Hey, guys, this is Brian Foote, CEO of Humble and host of the new Humble Nation podcast. As a recently public company, we're seeing interest in blockchain, mobile payments, ticketing, NFTs, and more growing faster than ever in what we call the digital economy. So join me along with high-profile guests from the world of pro sports, music, entertainment, and other industries as we talk about how technologies like blockchain are shaping their world, ours, and the decade ahead for all of us in the digital economy, only on Humble Nation. Sure enough, with Glafira's next visit came fascinating news. Anne's hunch was right. According to Mr. X Jr., his art-buying parents had indeed dealt with Alfonso Osorio. Osorio fit perfectly into the backstory Glafira and Anne were now embroidering together. Mr. and Mrs. X had purportedly died by the time Glafira Rosales paid her first visit to the Nodler in 1994. So had Alfonso Osorio, whose ashes upon his death in 1990 were scattered over the grounds of the creeks. Was it mere coincidence that artists, dealers, and go-betweens had a way of dying shortly before the Bergantinos team started tweaking their legacies? As they sifted through the archives, Anne and her staffers also searched for photographs taken in the studios of mid-century artists. Perhaps the paintings in the backgrounds of those photographs might offer clues. Anne was so into connoisseurship in proving that something existed because we found some archival letter from Robert Motherwell. One former staffer says by way of example, in fact, they never found any direct evidence, ever. Anne was very sure of herself, the staffer added. If she believed, then she could make others believe. Well, you know the old saying, you can't cheat an honest man. <laughs> you know, that's what the story is. That's Nodler artist Donald Sultan. She certainly should have known. The fact that she didn't know where they came from was our, a tip-off. Yeah. Because any reputable dealer would not deal with that. And then the other part of it is that if she thought they were real, she thought that she was getting them from this woman at a cheap price. Yeah. So basically she thought she was conning the woman. So, you know, like I'm saying, you can't cheat an honest man. <laughs> you know, the whole nature of a con person is to make you seem like you can't trust them, right? So that she, her idea was to make them feel like, you know, you, they're very lucky to know someone like you who's trustworthy. It was they may not be, and you, you know, so and so forth. So basically, Anne was conning. Anne thought she was conning yes, Glafira. Of course. And in fact, Glafira was conning her. Exactly. For Glafira and Anne, there was soon cause for another celebratory lunch. It was the day that Glafira first brought in a Jackson Pollock. It was a classic drip painting, unusually small, 
but a Pollock it was, or so it seemed to be. Friedman and her husband Robert decided to buy it themselves for the relatively modest price of $280,000. In buying it together, Anne and her husband may have hoped to establish themselves as Pollock dealers. Interestingly, Anne and Robert Friedman may also have chosen to keep the small Pollock for themselves because of how it was signed. One day, while I was working on my story for Vanity Fair, Anne invited me up for a tour of her apartment. On the walls hung a small Jackson Pollock that was about the size of a magazine cover. Oddly, its signature was misspelled as P-O-L-L-O-K. The C was missing. It would remain in the Friedman's personal collection all through the saga that ensued. The curious misspelling of Pollock would come up later and even be disputed by Anne, written off as a slip of the pen. Maria Konnikova recalls this debacle. She started describing how, oh, well, probably, you know, the pen skipped or this or that. She made up excuses for it rather than say, okay, like, this is a problem. She said, see, it's definitely not a fake because a fake Pollock would never have misspelled the name Pollock. And listening to her say that when I talked to her was just mind boggling. To Anne's pride and delight, Ophira brought her a second, larger Pollock a greenish drip-style painting called Untitled 1949. The painting was 12 by 18 inches. It was small for a Pollock, but impressive-looking all the same. This time, the artist's name was spelled correctly. It was the first of at least four Pollocks that would pass through the Nodler. Despite Glafira's refusal to furnish any more personal details, Anne could hardly complain about how her paintings were selling in the new millennium. One couple, Murray and Kay Bring, bought a Deben corn for $94,000. Richard Gilson bought a Deben corn for $148,000. The Michelle Rosenfeld Gallery bought a Rothko for $325,000. The Kemper Museum bought a Franz Klein for $475,000 and a Rothko for $615,000. Soon after, Hughes and Sheila Podiker bought a Franz Klein themselves for $535,000. Jack and Fran Levy paid $750,000 for a Clifford Still, $560,000 for a Franz Klein, and $615,000 for a Rothko. The Levies would eventually eclipse all other individual purchases to date, acquiring a Jackson Pollock from the Nodler Gallery for $2 million. For some reason, Glafira remained willing to accept modest prices from the Nodler. These were prices far lower than the works would have earned her at auction or even through other dealers. Was Glafira just too shy to press Anne for more? Or was Anne just that good of a negotiator? Perhaps the latter, since as Anne later put it with pride, quote, I never paid Glafira a commission. I just gave her the net price, end quote which was to say that the two women agreed on a flat fee and Glafira just took what she got. And then set whatever retail price she liked and sold them to the buyer. There was not percentage to me, there was a payment. Carlos told me, ask her for this much, I got that much, I don't know how much she got. Anne never told Glafira what the retail price would be. Anything over that flat fee was Nodler's to keep 
with Anne pocketing whatever commission she chose to take. E.A. Carmine, an expert in both Pollock and Rothko who had previously declared Glafira's first Rothko to be real, weighed in again on the Nodler's new Pollock. Once again, he concluded the painting was real. As experts go, Carmine was the genuine article. He had served as the National Gallery's founding curator of contemporary art in Washington, D.C. So when Carmine determined the Pollock was legitimate, it carried a lot of weight. It wasn't the same as true provenance, but it was a good start. Later, other experts would note that Carmine had rendered that judgment only after signing on as a paid consultant to the Nodler Gallery. If she didn't officially, you know, get a contract and hire him, she handed him the money, you know what I mean? Uh, and also she used stories, you know, she said, you know, E.A. Carmine approved this. Doesn't mean he approved it. One Nodler staffer recalled just how vital a role Carmine was now playing in legitimizing works from Glafira Rosales. One time we had a check going out to E.A. Carmine, the staffer recalled, only the check hadn't been cut yet, and Anne was furious. He wrote appraisals that helped sell work, the colleague recalls Anne saying. He really just got us out of a jam. We need to get him a check right away. Jack Levy, co-chairman of mergers and acquisitions at Goldman Sachs, bought his $2 million Pollock in late 2001. The Levies had already bought three other mid-century works from Nodler that would turn out to be fake. With that purchase of untitled 1949, they were in for over $4.3 million. Levy was an eager collector, but a careful one too. Before taking possession of his Pollock, he demanded it be vetted by the International Foundation for Art Research, or IFAR. If IFAR approved the work, he would happily accept the sale. If not, Nodler would have to take the painting back and return $2 million to the Levies. Anne readily agreed. Later, she said she had no doubt the painting was real. The cover letter was certainly seen by Jack Levy. We said we cannot accept the work as a work by Jackson Pollock. More from Sharon Flesher, executive director of IFAR, next time on Art Fraud. Art Fraud is brought to you by iHeartRadio and Cavalry Audio. Our executive producers are Matt Del Piano, Keegan Rosenberger, Andy Turner, myself, and Michael Schneerson. Special thanks to composer Danielle Ava Schwab. The classical selections in this week's episode are from her new album, Out of the Tunnel, available now. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and Zach McNeese. Zach also edited and mixed this episode. Lindsay Hoffman is our managing producer. Our writer is Michael Schneerson. Hold up. 
Have you ever wanted to learn about cryptocurrency but don't know where to start? Well, the Coin Bureau podcast is here to help. My name is Guy, I'm the host of the biggest crypto channel on YouTube, and I've persuaded my old friend Mike to sit down and talk crypto with me. Together, we're going to explore this crazy world right from the beginning. Sound good, Mike? Sounds great, Guy. Listen to the Coin Bureau podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've all felt left out. And for people who move to this country, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Look through your children's eyes, and you will discover the true magic of a forest. Find a forest near you and start exploring at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.